Today's reading is from Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 to 40. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept from the Holy Spirit by preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we went out to sea and sailed the Straits of Thromatrance, and the next day we went to Neopolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city in the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place to, of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman of the city of Thyatria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and her members of the household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to a place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owner by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul had become so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hopes of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrate and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar and advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Cyrus, and the magistrates were ordered, magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten by rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And Paul shouted, 
Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and they were filled with joy because they had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens, they threw us into prison and now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come here themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them out of the prison, requesting that they leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Father God, thank you for this time now. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are with us now by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that through your word, you would speak into our hearts and into our lives and help us to see what it means to live for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, um, we recently did a survey of uh, people's feelings about evangelism or, or talking to others about Jesus. Um, and some people here will have taken part in that survey. We got nearly about 50 people responded, which is enough to get a good picture of how people feel about these things. So that here, we, here we go. Here are the top three things that people say stop us from talking to other people about Jesus. What would they be? Here are the top three. I wonder what yours were. Here were the top three on average. Number one, we think other people aren't interested. Okay, that was the top reason that we don't talk to other people about Jesus. Then the second, number two and three are both about fear. Number two, we fear how people will respond. And number three, we fear that what we say will offend them. Okay, so other people aren't interested and then fear <clears throat> essentially then it's also actually interesting to see what was at the other end what are the least barriers the things which aren't such an issue for us so uh, number one the, the very lowest thing was i don't see the need so what that means is that actually we do get that this is something that we we want to do and that we think we ought to be doing we do see the need and the second lowest one was i have limited contact with non-christians Okay, so it's not that we don't know any non-Christians. We're at work, we've got families, we've got friends and neighbours. We know non-Christians. That's not the problem. The third one was, I lack personal experience to share. So in other words, we, we don't lack personal experience to share. 
<clears throat> we can talk about what God means to us personally. We have experience to share with others that we want to do. So those aren't the issue. The issues are we think other people aren't interested and we fear what they're going to say. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, this... <coughs> So this chapter in Acts that we just heard read for us by Lally is about how people respond to hearing about Jesus. That's what we see in these verses. There are repeated references to preaching and to sharing the word through these verses. So let's just see that. First of all, just take a sort of uh, <clears throat> a whistle-stop tour through all those verses and see how that's the case. Verse 6, do you see, they've been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, and it's clear in these verses that the Holy Spirit is guiding them to where they need to go and talk about Jesus and preach. Verse 10, God had called us to preach the gospel in Macedonia, they conclude. And the, did you notice the us there? That, by the way, is Luke writing the Acts of the Apostles, this book, um, pointing out that now he, from this point onwards, he is personally involved on the journey with them. So up till now, it's been on the basis of eyewitness testimony. He made that clear at the beginning of his gospel. That's his way of doing things. He's collected lots, he's interviewed lots of people. He's written the gospel. He's then written the first half of Acts. But from this point onwards, he's an eyewitness himself. And uh, verse, so verse 13, they go to look for a place of prayer. Another way of talking about a Jewish synagogue. And what do they want to do? They want to speak to the people who've gathered there. Verse 14 Lydia responds to Paul's message. Verse 17, this slave girl shouts, they're telling you the way to be saved. And we'll come back later to what she means by that. Verse 18, Paul speaks to the Spirit in the name of Jesus. And then fast forward to that extraordinary scene in prison. Verses 31 and 32. Again, it's words about Jesus that they share with the jailer and that is followed by them speaking the word of the Lord. So can you see that theme running through this whole chapter? What is happening then is that as Luke shows Paul and the others preaching and speaking, what we then get are three different portraits of people responding to God's word. And the point is, what we see in this chapter in particular, is it's not just one type of person responding. Now, when we think back to those fears that we have, when we say, oh, I don't think people are interested, well, sometimes what we can mean by that is that we think, oh, the, the gospel really only works for a certain type of person. You know, someone like you or someone like me, but no, not someone like them. They, they just, it just won't do anything for them. They're too sorted, we might think. You know, like, oh, they, they've got it all. They're rich. They're happy. They want for nothing. Why would they want Jesus? Or we go the other way. Oh, no, their life is too messed up. You know, there's so much chaos there that needs unpicking and resetting that it's never going to happen. Or maybe they're too much of a sinner. They've done some terrible things. They don't want Jesus. And maybe deep down we wonder whether Jesus would want them. But these portraits here in, in, in chapter 16 are here to blow all that out of the water. Three very different people come to faith in Jesus. And remember, since chapter 10, Luke has been showing us in different ways that this gospel 
This good news about Jesus is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. It's a big uh, theme of what's going on. Two weeks ago, we saw that particularly in chapter 15, just before this, with the idea that gospel unity brings different types of people together. And that is what we see now. So you can see on the back of the the notice sheet, the gospel is for all. Do do follow with me of the Bibles. We're on page 1,112. And so first of all, we can see a wealthy business woman, verses 11 to 15. One of the uh, particularly distinctive things about Luke is that he relentlessly highlights in, in both his gospel and in Acts the experience and perspective of not just men, but women which would have been much more unusual then than now. But it's something that Luke in particular, you read and you think, oh, he, didn't know. He, he keeps doing that. It's deliberate. And here we learn Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. Do you see that, verse 14? And basically, dealing in purple cloth is like owning one of the clothes shops on Hampstead High Street. Okay, you know, where you walk past and you think, oh, I like the look of that jumper. And then you go in and you find out oh, the price tag's £300. And it's a charity shop. (laughs) But purple cloth, you see, is the clothing of the wealthy. And that would make her wealthy too, this Lydia. And we learn that she has attached herself to the Jewish synagogue as a worshipper of God. These people were often called God-fearers. They weren't fully Jewish, but they were kind of like, oh, I'm interested in this, I want to find out more. They were kind of on the fringe, intrigued, looking on, respectable, but not quite there yet. And there are people like that still today, aren't there? Maybe even here amongst us this morning. Welcome. But look what happens. Don't miss this. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So can you see two things were needed? Paul needed to preach And the Lord needed to open her heart. This is how God works. It is his work, but invariably he brings people to faith through the human preaching of his word. He uses his people. He uses people like us. Now the Bible often warns us of the danger of riches and wealth. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, says Jesus. And the reason is that riches blind us and make us think we're more secure than we are. So, in the book of Proverbs, the small groups are looking at Proverbs at the moment, coming across all kinds of wonderful riches there. Proverbs 23, verse 5. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? But it's so true. And we, the thing is, we get taken in so easily and that feeds into the greatest barrier that we started with so we start to think oh no people aren't interested you know they've they've got it all what could they possibly want with Jesus and there are a number of things we could say to that one of them is that there was a serious piece of research called talking Jesus that asked non-christians for their views on on a range of things this is a properly conducted statistical piece of research, large um, sample of people. And importantly, it revealed that one third of non-Christians 
who had a conversation with a Christian friend about faith were open to talking more. One third, which I think is a lot more than we kind of imagine it's going to be. And yes, okay, that means two-thirds had that conversation and thought, okay, no, I don't want to go any further. But actually, verse 14 here reminds us that there are two people at work here. There is Paul preaching, but there is also God opening the heart. And the opening the heart bit is not the job of Paul the preacher. It's not the job of us, the ones sharing the word. It's God's job. And he opens the heart of the woman that you would think was sorted and didn't need him. Now, yes, she was seeking as she had attached herself to this synagogue. But why was she seeking? Well, presumably because God was at work in her. See, it's not our job to decide for God whether people need to hear about Jesus. Everyone needs to hear, but he's responsible for the results. And look at the results. Do you see this verse 15 straight away? So it's like the book that some of the women are reading for their book group. The gospel comes with a house key. It's a great book. Men can read it too. It's, it's equally applicable. Here is Lydia and she gets it on day one. And this is the thing about wealth in the Bible. You see, there's nothing wrong with wealth provided you see it for what it is. And you don't think it's going to solve all your problems or rescue you for eternity or love you. But see it for what it is and thank God and then use it for him. That is what Lydia does. Do you see, straight away she sees she's wealthy enough to have a house that is big enough to host people in. Do you see this? And that was the particular need then. So day one, there's a church meeting in her house. Do you see that? And we'll see them again at the end of the chapter. So that's the first portrait the wealthy businesswoman. The second one, very different. An enslaved fortune teller. Verses 16 to 21. So join me, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And what happens next is a kind of comic aspect to it, doesn't it? You know, she kept this up for many days, it says. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. So what's going on here? There's a scene, I remember, in one of the original Star Trek movies. I'm not really a Trekkie, don't worry, but I've seen, you know, maybe you've seen the movies too. Captain Kirk and his crew come back in time to Earth. And Earth, they just happens, happens to be the mid-1980s when they come back to Earth, funnily enough. And they cause all kinds of hilarity by things like not realising that you can't just speak to a computer and expect it to understand you. Little did they know in the mid-80s. But there's a scene where Mr Spock, you know, the one with the Vulcan ears, is on a bus, I think. If I, if I remember this correctly, you can tell me if I'm wrong. And there's a guy with a sort of, you know, 80s ghetto blaster on his shoulder, making, making way too much noise and annoying everyone around him. And it's really annoying, and the Star Trek crew are all on there, kind of going, what's going on here? And they're getting more and more frustrated. And then Mr. Spock does his trademark Vulcan neck pinch, which sort of disables somebody immediately and puts them sort of harmlessly to sleep straight away. Knocks him out. 
So is that what's going on here? Is that, is that what Paul is doing? You know, using some kind of special power to make his life easier and stop this woman making all this noise. He's trying to get a job done here, and there's this woman walking around behind us shouting at us. You could do without that. It's made more confusing by what the woman is actually saying, isn't it? Because what does she say? These, these are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And you think, well, aren't they? Yeah, they are servants of the Most High God, aren't they? And, and they are telling you the way to be saved. What's the problem? I mean, maybe it's good to have this sort of free advertising. Well, the problem is both how those particular words will be heard and then also who is saying them. So in that culture, the Most High God is Jupiter or Zeus. That's what people would hear by that. You know, one of the many pagan gods on offer. And the way to be saved could just as easily mean how to live a happy life. I mean, the thing is, in the 21st century, we hear the word salvation and we immediately think of sort of Christian jargon. But actually, salvation can mean all kinds of things. The question is, what are you being saved from? Is it saved from drowning? Saved from poverty? What do you need saving from? So just using that word saved is not very clear at all. And then there's the fact, there's the words themselves which aren't that clear, and then there's this, the fact that this girl is an enslaved pagan fortune teller whose skills make money for her owners. And Paul and the others need to make it clear that what they're offering in Jesus isn't just one more possible God to add to your list and marginally increase your health and happiness, you know, like a tweak to your morning routine. That is not what they're offering. And so the problem is, as this woman follows them around, you see, the problem is, this is, this is like, a bit like, and, and bear with me, this is a bit like letting the local strip club take care of the church advertising. You know, the brand fit is not great. And when they use words like, we guarantee you will be satisfied with our services... Those things mean rather different things in those different contexts, don't they? Same words, very different. So you see, Paul isn't just getting irritated. He's wanting it to be clear that his message is something completely different from what they'll hear from the fortune tellers. But this is not just about clearing up confusion. This is about Jesus being at work through the ministry of Paul in the life of this enslaved fortune teller girl because she's the opposite of Lydia. She's at the bottom of society. She's being used and abused by others. You know, not far off a, a prostitute or something like that. And, and what we see here is that the gospel of Jesus is also for her. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, Paul says to the evil spirit who's been giving her these fortune telling powers you know the secular west has closed its eyes to the spiritual realm but elsewhere in the world people will be much clearer even now that there are such things as demons who can have a totally malevolent power over somebody's life and sometimes we see people today and they are enslaved by powers that are invisible and seem impossible to break whether it's addiction and, and substances or particularly self-destructive patterns of behavior Jesus has the power to break those patterns. 
That's all we're seeing here, you see. Not, not always instantaneously, but the gospel of Jesus is a gospel that puts broken people back together, whoever we are, whatever we've done. See, the root of all our problems is sin. It's rebellion against God. That is what Jesus came to deal with. <clears throat> and in this world, bit by bit, and in the new heavens and the new earth perfectly, the most broken and the most messed up and the most on the edges of society can equally find new life and be put back together in Jesus. So we've been thinking about this as a church, about reaching beyond the fringes. And you'll know from the weekend away, and if you've been here, we've been talking about this since then, back in March. Um, and we've got this meeting after half term, you can see on the notice sheet, about grace advocacy. And just investigating whether this is something that we could partner with as a church. Practical ways for us as a church to bring the gospel to people in a way that helps put people back together and offers them eternal hope so have a look at that if that interests you but the the response then to what we see here we've had the 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 the, the wealthy businesswoman we've had the enslaved fortune teller the response to what happens here then takes us to the final portrait because as the spirit leaves the enslaved woman so does the means for making money for her owners and they're furious. And so Paul and his companions end up in prison. And we come thirdly to this Roman jailer. So third portrait. Again, different from the others. Philippi, we need to understand, is a Roman colony. So many of those living there are Roman citizens. It's like an outpost of Rome somewhere else, but kind of proudly doing Roman things. You know, a bit like if you go to Gibraltar, no, I think this is slightly controversial, isn't it? If you go to Gibraltar, you know, you go there and you find they've got red post boxes and they're proudly sort of flying flags to say, um, here we are, you know, doing... And, and Philippi has that kind of sense to it, an outpost of Romanness somewhere else. And um, that, that, uh, that, that kind of conversation about citizenship that happens at the end of the chapter is about that as well do you see that where Paul points out the injustice of having been kept in prison as a Roman citizen but here, here, is, here, here then is a Roman jailer in Philippi so what kind of person would this be well you know basically a Roman jailer has one job to keep them inside do whatever it takes lock them up Okay, and, and prisoner welfare is not at the top of the list of his priorities to achieve that. So he's not going to be, you know, a friendly, nice guy that you can kind of hang out with and have fun with. He's going to be a kind of live by the sword, die by the sword kind of person, a brute. So pick it up at verse 25. About, there they are in prison, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Um, it's a crisis, isn't it? But in the middle of it, what are Paul and his companions doing? They're singing and praying. Have you ever sung and prayed in the middle of a crisis? It's a great thing to do. And think of the other prisoners then. The other prisoners were listening to them. You know, they're literally a captive audience, aren't they, at that point? And verse 26, that suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. You see, that's the one rule for jailers. Do what you like, but if your prisoner escapes, you die. And so he's getting ready. He's thinking, this is it. This is the end. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then comes the gift question that every preacher everywhere dreams of. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now again, it's slightly easy to read more into that question than is probably implied. So like the fortune teller, the question is, does he really know what he means by the word saved? Because in one sense, what he's most likely to mean is, how do I get out of this one? How do I get out of this mess I'm in? You know, the prisoners, the doors are open. This is total carnage. Help me. And what Paul then does is he answers the question that the jailer doesn't quite know that he's asking. Do you see? So he doesn't just say, well, here's a plan to kind of make this all work. He says, no, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, let's think about this. Christians can sometimes get a reputation for crowbarring the gospel into conversations. You know, you know someone says, I'm really tired. I will come to Jesus, he'll give you rest. Or, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lost, can you give me directions? Oh yeah, sure, the direction that you need is to find Jesus and put your trust in him. Yeah, but that, 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 this is not that kind of cringe-inducing situation. Because there are other times when someone is more like the jailer and they are in genuine distress and they don't even know what they're asking or what they're looking for. And what we need to pray for then is courage. That's the key to those fears that we thought about <clears throat> at the start that stop us from opening our mouths. You know, I don't, want to, I don't want to offend. I fear what people might say. Well, do we really believe that the gospel is for all and addresses all of us in whatever our circumstances are? That it meets our deepest needs, even the needs we don't even realize that we have. Well, Paul believed that for the Philippian jailer. Do we believe that for our friends and our families and our neighbours and our colleagues? Some of them might look as if Jesus is the last person they'll ever be interested in. If everything looks sorted. But we live in a world where less and less is certain. And the one thing that is certain is that everyone will suffer and beyond that that everyone will die. And in Jesus Christ, we can offer the one thing money can't buy. And the one thing that we can't achieve for ourselves and work out for ourselves. Life with him that starts now and lasts into eternity. Do we believe that? So we've got these three portraits. The wealthy businesswoman, the enslaved fortune teller, the Roman jailer. The chapter ends with them and others worshipping together in Lydia's house. Now imagine that gathering of people that you would never normally see in the same place. What's the, what's the ex-fortune teller doing in Lydia's house with a Roman jailer? 
But yesterday they were all doing their jobs. Now they're worshipping Jesus together. What on earth is going on here? What could possibly bring these people together? Well, the gospel is for all. And it brings all types of people together to worship God on the same terms. All through faith in Jesus Christ. No one in the end can bring anything. Everyone comes with empty hands. Everyone has nothing to offer and must cling on to Jesus. And that is what unites that extraordinary group of people together. So we'll keep thinking as we carry on through Acts in, in other ways as well, you know, about those fears that we began with and, and how we can address them and, and help one another with those things. But this is here, just this chapter is here to give us confidence. This gospel of Jesus who died and rose is what our friends and loved ones need, even if they can't yet see that. And so we pray for them. God is the one who opens eyes and hearts. We pray. We have to keep praying. We keep praying. We pray for opportunities. And then we're there, particularly perhaps when the crises hit. In friendship. We might think you've got, you know, you've got a friend and you think, oh, just, just the opportunities aren't there. But be the person that when life gets tough for them, they think, I know who I can trust, it's my Christian friend. They don't quite understand what they believe and why, and it's all a bit weird, but I know I can trust them, and I'm going to pick up the phone to them, I'm going to text them, because I can talk this through with them. And then we have that opportunity, and we listen and we wait for those questions to come. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's as straightforward and as profound as that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the news that we can offer to each other and to the world around us. Let's pray now. Father God, help us to see how we need the gospel personally in our own circumstances, in our own lives. Thank you that Jesus died so that each of us might put our trust in him and know that we're forgiven, that we have a fresh start, that we are saved from judgment, from sin. And we have life that starts now and lasts forever. Help us to see that clearly and then to believe that for those around us. When we think of the people that we will come into contact with even this week. Might we be able to have confidence in Jesus and in the gospel to change lives.
Would that help us with our fears and our worries? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.